It's great to see new faces. I'm always worried after the first talk I'll see less. <laughs> Here I see double. That's a first. Uh, so we're going to be in the book of Romans uh, chapter 8 this morning. Uh, and actually for the two talks, chapter 8. Well, they didn't tell me which chapters to look at, but if you get to choose the book of Romans and you don't choose chapter 8, there's probably something wrong with you. So I'm going to read the first 13 or 14 verses. I'll read, I'll read to verse 14, beginning at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh But in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Well, that is, that is a lot to, uh, to take in. And, and what you find in Romans chapter 8 as many of you probably have heard and know, uh, Romans chapter 8, at least the first half, is dedicated to what we call the teaching of the Holy Spirit. But uh, that's a little bit of a wrong-headed way to look at Romans 8, if you don't mind me saying something that you uh, may at first disagree with on the surface. And the reason I say that is because if you just look at the references to the triune persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the first 14 verses, what you find is that while there may be seven or eight verses dedicated to God, and yes, there are about 11 or so verses dedicated to the Spirit, you have another seven or eight verses where the Son is explicitly included. And so what you have in Romans chapter 8 is not simply the teaching of the Holy Spirit, but the mechanics of how this all works, which incidentally happens to be a triune working of God in your Christian life. So we'll get to chapter 12 and we'll get to chapter 15 
uh, tonight and tomorrow, which will look at the practical way in which we live the Christian life. But chapter 8 is really the sort of mechanics of how does this take place? Uh, What does it look like in terms of the inner working of our being and how God works? It's, It's very much an emphasis upon what God does and how God works. And stamped all over your sanctification is the triune God. You'll remember yesterday that we opened up Romans 5, and since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God, what? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you open up chapter 8, and what we find is that the opposite of justification is condemnation. We are all in Adam condemned. In Christ we are justified But again, notice the emphasis. There is therefore now, this is in the present tense, just as chapter 5 is in the present tense, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if God is going to have peace with you, if God is going to justify you, if God is going to reverse his sentence of condemnation, it only happens in and through one person. And that is why uh, there have been books written and, and, and people have argued about, well, is there only one way of salvation? Are there many ways to God? Do we all serve the same God? You have to ask yourself, if God goes to such excruciating detail in the book of Romans to highlight the precise manner in which he saves people through his Son and by the Spirit, how can we then justify that God would save in another way when he has explicitly said this is how he does save. So what you have here is the removal of condemnation. And that is no small thing because as Roman Catholics and Protestants debated furiously in the time of the Reformation, chapter 8 verse 1 was really the sort of linchpin of Debate that the Protestants used to say, listen, the condemnation that we are all under no longer exists. There's freedom now in the Christian life. There's freedom with God. There's peace with God. The verdict that you think will one day be delivered in the future has actually been delivered into the present moment. And of course, for Roman Catholics who, who depended upon the indulgences and, and people paying to get family members out of purgatory and, and sort of scaring people into having this system of theology whereby they had to wait until that final day to see if they would be saved. Imagine telling God's people, you are now under no condemnation. Well, this will lead to loose living. This will lead to Uh, all sorts of problems, who would ever then give to the church if they're under no condemnation? But you see, that's not really the implications that Paul draws from chapter 8, verse 1, if you keep on reading in chapter 8. In fact, the implications that Paul draws from the fact that we are now no longer under any condemnation is a vigorous doctrine of sanctification, So we have to be careful not to say, well, if we tell people that God has passed the verdict, that they're innocent, that they're justified, that they're as good as saved as they'll ever be, 
then they're not going to live holy lives. And Paul doesn't really seem to entertain that in chapter 8. Now, you'll notice, and we have to sort of skim along, that um, the real point, I think, that you can take from verses 1 and 2 is you are as safe if this verse speaks of you, you are as safe as Christ himself is. You are as safe as Abraham. You are as safe as Moses, as Peter, as Mary, as Esther. You are as saved as they are. Because if God pronounces a verdict upon a human being, and he is a judge who knows all things, and he is a wise judge, and a powerful judge, and a knowledgeable judge, and an eternal judge, once he passes a verdict upon somebody, that verdict is irrevocable. Only a judge who made a mistake might revoke that verdict. But when God makes a verdict upon somebody, whether it is his son who he justifies at the resurrection, whether it is Peter, whether it is the greatest saint in history, that verdict cannot be revoked. And so, if you are the person described in verse 1, because you are in Christ Jesus, you are as safe as Jesus Christ himself is in heaven right now. The same verdict has been passed on you. No condemnation. And you've been set free because there is certain laws at work. You know, if you throw a stone, there's the law of gravity where the stone will eventually come down. That's basic. But you could also throw a, a live bird into the air and, and there's a certain law whereby that bird uh, would fly into the air and the law of gravity would not be suspended, but another law defies the law of gravity. So as you throw the bird into the air, it's not as though gravity says, well, for the bird, we're going to just release our, our power that we have and let the bird fly, but for everyone else, we're going to remain in force. No, the, there's another law there that defies another law. Now, why do I say that? Because there is another law in the Christian life that defies another law of sin and death, and that is the law of the spirit of life that God has given to you. So you, apart from the spirit, are dead to the law, but the spirit gives you wings, so to speak. The spirit enables you to fly. The spirit enables you to live truly as God Intended, and that's what you find in Romans 3 8, 3 to 4. Notice that for God has done, here the emphasis is upon the Father, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And so, in relation to the law, while we're in the flesh, the law cannot give us life because the flesh is dead to the law. But here you see the Trinitarian nature of salvation. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, though not possessing sinful flesh, but possessing true human nature, and for sin, which he died on the cross for our sins, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see in verses 3 and 4, the Trinitarian accent there. God sends his Son 
His Son condemns sin in the flesh, and we walk according to the Spirit. It's important that you understand that. Now, there's a little bit of a tricky part in verse 4 because it says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So on the one hand, we're dead to the law in the flesh, but in the spirit, we're alive to the law. And it seems to me that Paul is describing in verse 4, not justification in order that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, That's something that you see in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 3. Chapter 8, what I think he's saying in verse 4 is that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us because we walk according to the Spirit. Now, how do we understand this? Well, there's there's actually a fancy Latin phrase that that gets at this. It's called the divine acceptalatio. And and what that really means is it's God's acceptation of us. Because we are in Christ and because we live by the Spirit, He accepts what is sincere obedience, imperfect obedience, and that obedience is the fulfilling of the law. Now, I need to prove that because been around the world long enough to know that that might be a new teaching or a foreign teaching to a whole host of people. Um, in James chapter 2, verse 8, for example, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now, you could say, well, that if is a big if, and well, we all know that nobody does it, so nobody's doing well. You could say that. But the other thing you have to contend with is the fact that, and I think most Christians struggle with this, I won't do it here, there's far too many people that I would uh, hate to see embarrassed, but I ask Christians, this is the question I ask them. I say, how many people sitting here have pure hearts, and guess how many hands really want to go up in front of everybody else? Now, if I were to ask you that question, who here has a pure heart, and you're a Christian, you should put up your hand. Why should you put up your hand? Well, because if you are a Christian, you have a pure heart. In in 1 Timothy 1.5, you you can see this teaching that that Paul talks about how we we serve God with with a pure conscience and a pure heart, sincere conscience and a pure heart. Or if you want to worship God, did anybody sing Psalm 24 last night? Anyone? Now you can put up your hand. Did anyone sing Psalm 24 last night? Okay. And if you want to ascend to the hill of the Lord, what do you need? Come on, Ben. Clean hands and a pure heart. You were singing those words. I saw you. (laughs) So Ben has clean hands and a pure heart, or at least he desires to, because if you were worshiping this morning, if you want to ascend to the hill of the Lord, you need clean hands and a pure heart. So if I go back to the beginning and I say, okay, who here has a pure heart? You should have all put up your hands if you're Christians, right? Those who are pure in heart and only those who are pure in heart in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 will what? Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Oh, yeah. Well, I do want to see God. I still don't have a pure heart. 
You can't say that. You can't have a false humility that God hasn't allowed you to have. God hasn't granted you that false humility. You may have that false humility, but that's not God telling you to have you that, that false humility. God is asking you to describe yourself in the precise terms that he has described you. He hasn't given you his spirit. He hasn't given you his son so that you can say, oh, I am just purely a sinner and nothing else. Because you will tend to only live the way in which you describe yourself. So what does David do in Psalm 51? After he's committed some pretty horrendous sins, he desires to receive the gift of a renewed, purified heart. David could say after committing adultery in Psalm 51, repenting and killing Uriah, I have a pure heart. That's a remarkable thing. Now, let's ask another question. Who here is good and righteous? Now, you know, you're going to put up your hand because you know, I know he'll just have some verses that say that Christians are good and righteous. Well, and I do. Zechariah and Elizabeth are described in the following way. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. That's in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. So if you go to Romans chapter 8, verse 4, you can say, well, do we see that anywhere in the scriptures? And lo and behold, Zechariah and Elizabeth seem to, even before the resurrection of Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit from on high, seem to be a perfect description of the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in them. Or Joseph of Arimathea is similarly described as a good and righteous man. Christians are slaves of righteousness. If we go back to chapter 6, we hunger and thirst after righteousness. In fact, Christians are blameless. Paul writes to the Philippians, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be what? Blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul expects that Christians, children of God, should be blameless. He doesn't say sinless. He says blameless. And he's not saying that you're blameless because you've been justified. We are accepted before God because we're justified. But we are blameless and innocent and without blemish because of our conduct. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be considered blameless. Maybe I can use a, a, an illustration to help drive this home, but um, most of you probably don't have children, but a number of you do. Uh, and I won't venture to guess how many, but uh, I have four, and uh, I have twin boys, and uh, they're very different. It, they are like the most different kids that I have of the four. And... Uh, they had a school project where they had to, um, for, Father's, or for Father's Day, um, get rocks on the playground and glue these rocks onto a piece of paper, and the rocks were to represent the family members. So, uh, I've already got that 
daddy shark song in my head. <laughs> but the one twin came home and there's a big rock for dad and a, 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 lessly, a less sized rock for mom, to be careful there. Uh, and then there's the sister who gets the next size rock, and then the, the brother who's 11, so the sister's 13, brother's 11, and then there's the twins. So all the rocks matched up rather nicely with the family. You could tell which rock you were, you know, and this was given to me. And then my other twin, he just did one massive rock and then one little rock and forgot the rest of the family members and gave me this artwork. And I was really, to use a, a British word or English word, chuffed, because uh, here my one twin boy felt that it was only necessary that him and I should be on this piece of paper. <laughs> the other one I also accepted. Now, I can assure you that Picasso and Rembrandt and Da Vinci and all of them are not concerned right now about my son's artwork. But because it came from my child my child, and because it was done to the best of their ability, sincerely, do you think I accepted it? Or do you think I was like, oh, come on, these are the best rocks you could find? <laughs> but you see, that's precisely the way in which God deals with us now as his children. He knows our weakness. He knows that we're flesh, but he's still willing to accept sincere <laughs> obedience because we are his children now. If you were to talk about trying to do all of these things while not being God's children, it would sound stupid. But since you are his friend, since you have been justified, and since you are in the Spirit, living by the Spirit, even your sincere, albeit imperfect obedience, will be accepted by your Father so that he can say, you are righteous, you are good, you are blameless, you are pure in heart, that the righteous requirement of the law is met in you. So a lot of Christians, I think, need to change the way they even think about themselves because of the way God has described them, which is very different from how we will often describe ourselves. Now, I need to, to move along, and um, I want to get to uh, verses 5 to 9, because uh, he contrasts two different types of living, those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. And the, the real distinction between those outside of Christ and those in Christ is the bent of their mind. Where do they set their mind? How do they think? You'll remember uh, Descartes had that fancy phrase, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Uh, he, the, the French, uh, je pense donc je suis. Uh, it was for a wider audience, and it caught on, uh, you know, and most people didn't really know what on earth he was talking about, and for those who thought they knew what he was talking about, they spent ages disputing what he was talking about, but it's actually quite a Christian idea that the, 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 the way in which you think describes who you are. If you think, so you are. If I have my mind set on the things of God, on the things of the Spirit, so I am a Christian. If I have my mind set upon the things of the flesh, 
so I am not in the spirit. And so what you find is there's a real sharp distinction for the mind, verse 7, that is set on the flesh. You see where it's set? Is hostile to God. However, in verse 9, we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And so our mind is set upon the things of the spirit. So what would that look like? Well, if you go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, you'll see what it is to have your mind set upon the things of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then Paul will say, I warned you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those in the flesh have their minds set upon. We're not talking about occasional thoughts. We're not talking about struggles. We're talking about those who set their whole mind and way of living upon a certain course of action that is contrary to God. And I I know these types of people. My dad owned a roofing company, and so I had my sex ed education at 11 on a roof because all of his employees, that's all they did. They just talked nonstop about sex and drugs and all of these things. Their mind was set upon the flesh. And then you get into high school, and I went to a public high school, and all sorts of nasty creatures there. (laughs) And you should have seen some of the boys as well. (laughs) (laughs) But you you could tell with certain groups of friends, it it was just a downward spiral of iniquity. And when you find somebody whose mind is set upon the spirit, it's so shocking to your being and, and just your whole worldview uh, that you really don't know what to do. It's, and this is what happens, you know, in the soccer club where I coach these teams, everybody knows I'm a minister, and there are some people who, when they talk to my wife and I, they're used to dropping the F-bomb over and over and over, but then they get on the phone with us or they talk to us and they change it to frickin'. And it's so funny. <laughs> I'm like, I've heard all these words. I don't really care. I know you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, I'd care because I'd say, you're not to speak that way. But they're trying to use every other word than the swear word because they know there's a difference. And I know there's a difference. So when Peter um, is rebuked by Jesus and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God. So even Peter was leaving that course of thinking that he should have been under, but on the things of man. That's to set your mind upon the things of the flesh. So, yes, we can at times have bad thoughts. We can think sinful thoughts. I'll get to that a little bit later. But the general pattern of our thinking, of our being, of our lives should be on the things of the Spirit. And so Paul will say to the Philippians, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Where's the bent of your mind? On spiritual things or on carnal things? Where does the scale tip?
it's unlikely unless you're the Lord Jesus Christ that it's an altogether 100%, 0%. But the Christian life is all about being in the Spirit and setting your mind upon the things of the Spirit. And the goal is to please God. We'll jump through to verse 8. Because those in the flesh cannot please God. We, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. So we are able to please God is the sort of uh, deduction you would uh, get from that. And, and notice he says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And I think his if there probably means as is the case. As is the case, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now notice, the Spirit of God is not an occasional visitor. He takes up residence in God's people. And you'll notice that there's also this phrase, the Spirit of Christ. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So who lives in you? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ? Because if you look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, you get all three, which makes sense. If the Trinitarian nature of God is true, and God is one, and yet three persons, it makes perfect sense for Paul to seamlessly speak about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit lives in us. And the Spirit gives us, as it were, wings. You know, uh, one of the things about... Um, I go for runs, and this happened to me yesterday. I'm ashamed to admit it. Uh, don't tell anyone outside of this castle, please. But uh, I was going for a run. I, you know, I wasn't feeling so great jet lag, but I, you know, I started to kick into gear. And then I saw all of these runners going around the lake. And my biggest fear was that some old granny was going to come running past me. <laughs> my second biggest fear was that anyone would actually come running past me. And so I didn't look behind. I thought, Mark, you're ridiculous. You're out on an enjoyable run around the lake. Why would you look behind? But, you know, I, I, I really started to pick it up on the back straight and was happy to get home and win the race that I myself was, was running. But some of you have noticed, I don't know, if you've gone running in a race, when people are cheering on the side, what that does for you, it kind of, you know, it, it gets you going a bit. And uh, sometimes I go for a run, and if I'm running and see someone up ahead, I, I pick up my pace a little, you know. I want them to see that I'm a, I'm a good runner. And it's amazing how external influences can propel us, so to speak. And we have that in the Christian life. We do have external influences, but the most important thing in the Christian life actually isn't an external influence. It's the internal triune God who dwells in you, who enables you to do all of the things that he is asking you to do. You don't just have a God on the outside saying, you can do it, you can do it. You have a God dwelling in you who is enabling you to do it. And that's the glory of the Christian life. Now, as we move along to uh, verses 10 and 11, you'll notice precisely this point. Christ is in you. And, and that's one of the great truths of, of the Christian life because 
Christ in you. And, and in Colossians 1, 27, uh, Paul writes to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or uh, one of the best verses in all of God's word, I think, and uh, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, wrote what is been called one of the greatest sermons ever written in the English language on Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, Christ dwells in you. Christ is in you. Who is living in your heart? The Holy Spirit is living in your heart. We see that in verse 11 of chapter 8. Christ is living in your heart and the Father lives in your heart. In 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And we know it's speaking about the Father because the context shows earlier that this God sent his Son. Who lives in you? A lot of times Christians say, the Holy Spirit lives in me. I teach my children. Who died for you? Jesus. Who lives in you? The Holy Spirit. The truth is, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all live in you. That is why we can say we're Christians. God dwells in us. Now, here then are the duties. The realities you see in verses 10 to 11, the duties are in verses 12 to 13. So then, brothers, in light of all of this, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But verse 13, for you John Owen fans, this is the verse you, you know inside and out, right? You've read 83 pages of volume 6 uh, from page 1 to, I think, page 83 uh, on mortification of sin. And, and that's really your ticket as a young man into the Reformed world, right? You, you have your Bible in one hand and your John Owen mortification of spin in the other hand and you, you walk into church and you think, this is how I'm going to get a wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, is if you actually read it and listen to it, you probably will get a wife because you'll have mortified your sin and you'll be somewhat desirable. I'm not sure carrying the book will do it in and of itself. You can try. But... Verse 13 is really an all or nothing, you can say, this is basically what our life is all about. For if you live according to the flesh, if you have your mind set upon the things of the flesh, if the bent of your thoughts and patterns and all of that are on the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, again, coming back to the only way in which we're ever able to do anything that pleases God, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body or the misdeeds of the flesh or the sinful nature, you will live. So what you need to understand firstly as a Christian is that you don't owe the flesh anything. The flesh will desire and desire and desire and try to pull and pull and pull. The flesh is, the flesh is hungry. There was... Uh, Someone once who uh, was the type of person who could always find something nice to say about anybody. So you know those types of people, that they do exist, you know? Whereas we'd be like, oh, I can't stand that person. They're so annoying, uh, you know? And then that person comes in, well, you know, and then they find something nice to say about someone. Well, they tried this once on this person, and he says, ah, 
what about the devil? And you know what the person said? He doesn't have a lazy bone in his body. <laughs> well, we know he uses that for malicious, wicked, evil purposes, but let me tell you something about the flesh. Your flesh will never, ever give up wanting from you. And so the solution to your flesh is insatiable desire to eat you and destroy you and want and want and want is to put it to death by the Spirit. It's not something you can say, hey, let's just agree to go our separate ways. That's not how the flesh works. You need to mortify, put to death, kill the sinful nature. And that's where the holy war takes place. And, of course, uh, you will all have specific deeds of the body that you will need to mortify because we're all constituted in different ways. The seed of every known sin, said Robert Murray McChain, is, is in my heart, he said, and that's true, but there are many of us here where we have specific sins that at different points in our life we struggle with. Sometimes, um, you know, men at stages in their life will struggle with lust intensely. Sometimes they will struggle with they want to sleep a lot. I'm at that stage right now. I just love sleeping. I'm told that there's a stage where you just want to eat. Um, and some people, they have all of those troubles at once. And some people struggle with they, they just love money and they, they want to have stuff. And they're, they're very greedy. And other people just don't seem to really struggle with that. Some people are, are boisterous and loud and they get themselves in trouble because they say stuff and they've just got a very free way of speaking. And others, they don't ever say anything. And when they should say something, they don't because they're cowardly. And everybody's constituted differently. And you're going to have to deal with the fact that your flesh is going to wage war against you in specific ways. And you need to kill those sins because the reward is you will live. And the reward, as you might expect, is the opposite of the one found in the earlier part of this verse. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, you will live. So let me ask this question. Does this sound like an optional extra in the Christian life? If God has gone to such lengths to die in the person of Jesus Christ, if Christ has died for your sins... And if God has sent his spirit into your hearts and given you all that you need to be able to do all that he commands, do you think it's a, an optional? There's a phrase by Augustine. It's one of, my famous, uh, one of my favorite of his famous phrases. He says, Lord, give what you command and command whatever you wish. Now, a lot of times people have to go, wait a minute. Give what you command and command whatever you wish. He gives us what he commands so he can command whatever he wishes. Think about your justification. God demands that you perfectly fulfill his law. He gives you that through Jesus Christ and so he can command whatever he wishes if he's going to give you what he commands. And he commands that you sincerely obey him in the spirit. And guess what? He gives you the spirit so that you can sincerely obey him. There's nothing that God commands of you that he has not given to you. 
And that's the glory of the Christian life. Let me just conclude with these last few points of application. And it's, it's really uh, what I would call um, the vanity of thought. Some of the things you may want to be wary of. I'll give you three things that you should try not to do and then three quick things to help you in that endeavor. And then we'll, we'll end. I've got, what, two minutes? Well, I've got as long as I want, I suppose, but... <laughs> So one thing we should be wary of is recalling sinful thoughts. Thomas Goodwin said, Reviving in our thoughts the pleasure of sinful actions past, when the mind runs over past sins with fresh delight, instead they should draw cross lines over them and blot them out with Christ's blood. Where's the bent of your mind? Sometimes we will look back upon past sinful actions and it will not be holy hatred, but a sort of carnal love. Or, in the present, thinking sinful thoughts, any thought that is a violation of God's law, you know, jealousy. How did they afford that? That type of question. Why is she with him? Uh, all of these questions, we think these sinful thoughts, we we, in the present, think things that are wrong. We sometimes run over thoughts that have taken place in the past that we know were wrong, but we delight in them. Or we imagine sinful thoughts. So it's not something that we're seeing, but we imagine sinful thoughts. You remember Absalom saying, Oh, that I were judge in the land. We imagine sinful thoughts. We imagine sinful thoughts, whether it comes to covetousness, whether it comes to sexuality, whether it comes to a whole host of things. And sometimes we quickly let our minds run, and before long, and sometimes it can happen in an instant, you're worshiping God, and the next minute you're thinking about all sorts of crazy things. Where is the bent of your mind? How are you going to deal with that? Well, the first thing is that we have to understand that God has more thoughts of mercy in him towards us than we have of rebellion towards him. So true godliness is taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. Do you see how much in the New Testament and in the Bible is focused upon our thoughts? Or having good thoughts. Remember David with Shimei's curse. You can go and look how Shimei's cursing him and David's thoughts towards him are not thoughts of evil. Or Job could have easily let his thoughts go astray, but he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Where was the bent of Job's mind? It was on the things of the Spirit. Or Stephen, when he's being stoned, I mean, you can say, well, my life's difficult, you know, it's hard to have these good thoughts. People are mean to me. Stephen was being stoned and he said, Lord, forgive them, just as our Lord Jesus Christ had said the same thing. And then finally, meditate upon God. You struggle with having good thoughts? Perhaps you're not meditating upon God. Psalm 10 verse 4, in his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all of his thoughts, there is no room for God. Prayer is one thing, worship is another thing, but meditating upon God is a way to have the bent of your mind thinking about God. 
And that will help you with the everyday run of things, whether it is just in relationships, whether it's work, whatever it may be. Meditate upon God and fill your mind and your soul with God, great thoughts of God, and you'll see that your thoughts will start to change and that the Spirit will vindicate and validate good thoughts. Once you allow bad thoughts and sinful thoughts to take over, you're quenching the Spirit. Once you allow good thoughts, thoughts of God and Christ and who you are, the Spirit not only is not quenched, but the opposite effect takes place. And I think those are some of the important points of of Romans 8. Well, uh, why don't I just close with a word of prayer briefly. Thank you, Father, for your word and for the glorious truths that are spoken, not only of you, which we love to sing about, but also the glorious truths that are spoken of us because we are remade in your image and given so much. And, O Lord, if you had not described us in the way that we have seen today, we would not believe it. But you have, and so we pray that we will believe it and that we will think as Christ thought and take every thought captive to make it obedient to him. Amen.